This is Age of Treason Radio. On the White Network. Daddy always smiled, took me by the hand, saying someday you'll understand. Well, I'm here to tell you now that you never mother stone. You better like it fast, you better like it young, cause someday it never comes. With your host, Tan Stoffel. Misconstruing the Jews. New topic. I've uh, spent the last two months or so talking about the murder of Mary Fagan and the trial of Leo Frank. And I want to move to not exactly a new topic, but something that ties together a lot of things that I've discussed in the past 18 months or so. Uh, and put it together. Um, I'm thinking uh, right here at the beginning of, of talking a little bit about uh, what came up in my discussion with Carolyn Yeager uh, in the latter part of uh, 2013 when we got together and talked about white pathology and what seemed to me to be uh, at the root of the question is is the problem with whites in our mind or in our genes? Are we biologically flawed in some way that makes us vulnerable, susceptible uh, to exploitation? Uh, or is it in our minds? And I think it, there's a case that can be made for both. I think there is a little bit of both. But I think that the problem in the mind is the more immediate problem. It's the more recent problem that's really become fatal and, and deadly, and it's, on the good side, it's the, the part of the problem that is most easily altered, most easily addressed and, and changed. But the point is, is that problems can be caused by the mind being confused, and they can overcome, be overcome by getting the mind straight. I don't think that whites are lacking in competency or courage. I think what whites lack is a collective self-awareness, an identity. I think as tied to that, whites lack a sense of moral legitimacy rooted in a self-awareness, in an identity as a collective that has interests and has the moral legitimacy to pursue those interests that, and those interests override the interests of others who get in the way or who cause harm to whites. I think part of the problem is a misunderstanding. When I say misconstruing the Jews, I could just as well have said underestimating the Jews, misunderstanding the Jews. It's at, at root a misunderstanding of life itself, forgetting what life itself is about, that it's a competition. It's not everybody getting together and singing Kumbaya. 
and getting along and uh, being at peace with each other. It's actually about competing. And you can't compete as an individual against larger groups. The competition takes place between groups. Another failure is in recognizing the other, especially Jews as the other. And hand in hand with that is this tendency toward solipsism, toward um, not really uh, solipsism is an individual problem, but I mean a group solipsism, you could say call it Eurocentrism. This idea that we're the only group. I mean, it's related to this idea that everybody is us, uh, that, that whites have this universal, universalist tendency to think of everybody as us, and we've got to make a comfortable society in which everybody is equal and welcome and not discriminated against. And hand in hand with that goes this idea that we're the only ones that matter. I mean, it's, uh, there's almost some, there, there is some double think going on there that, uh, Everyone is us, but it's really whites who uh, are the only ones who we think matters. And we don't think about the other. We don't think about what part the other plays in problems. And it, and it comes up in this uh, argument, this debate about white pathology. Uh, even the, the term white pathology puts the emphasis on white people. It's all white people's problem, and we've just got to lift ourselves up by our bootstraps and make ourselves better. And of course we do. <laughs> That's, that goes almost without saying. But at the same time, you can't forget that there are competitors out there that want to bring you down, that are bringing you down. And uh, that's the main point that I want to make about that. Now, it's not enough to just recognize the other. I mean, uh, the very last installment of my series on uh, the Leo Frank trial, Hugh Dorsey, the uh, lead prosecutor, uh, I quoted him toward the very end as talking about uh, anti-Semitism, the accusation of anti-Semitism against the prosecution of Leo Frank that the defense had brought up. And I thought it was lame. Uh, he professed, and I think he probably accurately reflected a large portion of the sentiments of the population of the, the white Southerners at the time in, in 1913 when the trial was going on. Uh, but he, although he recognized the Jews as an other, as a separate race, literally he identified them as a separate race from his own. But he described them as being as good, but no better. In other words, as equals. And that's the problem right there, is in mistaking them, misconstruing the Jews as equals. In 1913, the white Southerners, at least the ones who thought like you Dorsey did, failed to recognize the Jews for what they are, as hostile, as harmful, to their long-term survival as a people, as the enemy. And we know now, with a 100 years of hindsight, but 
even in 1913. Those people should have been able to look at the previous century and see some see a similar picture because it it was a similar picture that they could have looked at. They would have had to look to Europe and the history of Europe and the Jews in amongst the Europeans for their example. There's a failure to recognize or associate the influence or actions of Jews with the Jews. I mean, in other words, the Jews do things and it gets attributed, the blame gets shifted to somebody else. And this is why the Jewish narrative is important. That's, it's, it's important to protect the Jews. Uh, it's, that's the purpose it serves is by, by transferring the blame Every time there's a conflict between Jews and the people that they're living amongst, the Jews blame it on the other people. And it, on its face, it's absurd that every conflict could always be somebody else's fault when the Jews are the ones who are involved in every one of those conflicts with all these different people across all the centuries. It's absurd on its face, and yet people buy it, and in part because it's repeated over and over and over again. It's this failure to recognize what the Jews are doing and to associate it negatively with the Jews. And, and part of the reason for that isn't just a failure that, gee, white people are stupid that they don't see this. Part of it is because we have competitors. The Jews are active in pursuing their own interests, and part of their own interests is making sure that nobody pins anything on them. So they attack anybody who tries to pin anything on them. And they squash it, and uh, it, it's not an accident. It's not just a a lack of uh, a will to uh, hold the Jews accountable. It's because the Jews actively fight for their interests. It's deliberate Jewish effort, in other words. And this is why their control over the media is so important and why they recognize the need to control the media. And they go right for it. And uh, even in Henry Ford's day, which was uh, they were writing the International Jew just five years after the uh, trial of Leo Frank, so pretty much contemporary, uh, they could see that, that the Jews didn't have full control yet over the media, but they could see that the Jews were getting there, that the Jews were taking over control of the media. And they even described, they did a very good job of, of describing how they did it through advertising and, and withholding advertising, boycotting uh, publishers that printed anything that the Jews didn't like. The Jews would act in concert to starve that public publisher of funds and uh, get their way that way. And part of this uh, uh, active uh, action of the Jews to to disguise their own actions is is what I've I spent a, several installments last year talking about Jewish crypsis. It's you could see it as part of that. This you know the general idea being disguise and um, part of that was the name game. You know that they changed their names, the plastic surgery, uh, calling themselves by some other nationality. Uh, the Russian mafia is a good example that comes to mind. Um, and another example of, of this crypsis, this hiding, this camouflage disguise is the way they 
confuse people by conflating Jewishness and Jewish identity with religion, as if it's about just being, you know, we're white like you guys, but we just have a different religion. That's uh, the game they play with, with religion. Now, I mentioned the international Jew. It's I want to focus a little bit on that because that's part of what I'm I've been thinking about the last few weeks is um, Ford's international Jew. It corresponded very well with the series on uh, Mary Fagan and, and Leo Frank that I was doing, and I referred to it several times. Uh, it was a wonderful effort to address this failure to recognize Jewish influence. It tried to expose Jewish influence to call it out to identify it. And uh, just this past week, the final chapter was read uh, by Carolyn and and Hatting. And um, I want to make a few comments on that because I thought that as good as the International Jew was as a a series, that there were times during the series when I could see that they struck a tone that was still too conciliatory or at least too diplomatic treating the Jews as equals or as potential partners rather than as an existential threat, as an enemy. You know, as if the goal of the writers of the International Jew at many times, the the uh, sentiments they expressed was as if the goal was to coexist with the Jews rather than to end Jewish rule or end the harm that Jews were doing that they were documenting, that they were discussing, that they were uh, complaining about. The last episode of The International Jew, and I think there'll be uh, one or two more uh, miscellany to wrap up that series, but in, in this most recent one that I'm referring to, started off with the uh, a quote from Bernard Lazar, everywhere they wanted to remain Jews, and everywhere they were granted the privilege of establishing a state within a state. By virtue of these privileges and exemptions and immunity from taxes, they would soon rise above the general condition of the citizens and the municipalities where they resided. They had better opportunities for trade and accumulation of wealth, whereby they excited jealousy and hatred. I think that's worth reading again and thinking about again, because it actually puts a finger on a very important aspect of Jewish identity and a recurring pattern throughout Jewish history. The privilege that Jews always seem to get, the the super privilege above and beyond what the ordinary citizens get, doesn't just fall into the laps of the Jews. It isn't just because white people are stupid. It's because Jews actively whine and bribe and extort and boycott and sometimes go beyond economic means and beyond mere political pressure and get into wet work, as they like to call it. But the point is is that they actively seek those privileges. And they never stop seeking those privileges. They just keep pushing. Now, do the people that they're living amongst the citizens, the ordinary citizens that they actually have more privilege than, do they hate that? Of course, what's not to hate about that, about that kind of iniquity? But it's like the resentment of a criminal. 
who defrauds you, who steals from you. It's not envy. It's not jealousy uh, as much as it is resentment of something that's unfair. So even Bernard Lazar here the, uh, in supposedly criticizing the Jews is actually soft peddling. He's actually softening the blow. And this is another recurring pattern with the Jews is supposed anti-Semitism. And, and Bernard Lazar is infamous because he's a supposed self-hating Jew, a uh, an anti-Semite. And the recurring pattern is this supposed anti-Semitism, which turns out to not be very incisive, not very cutting. And worse, sympathetic to Jews in the end, when you read it closely, pay attention to what's being said and the sentiments behind it. It reminds me of Gilad Otzman, who came up uh, in our last um, All Hands uh, radio program for the White Network. We talked a little bit about... Uh, the good Jew and uh, Gilad Otzman is, is one example of that. But Bernard Lazar strikes me as another example, a supposed critic of the Jews who actually has the best interests of the Jews uh, in his mind. I also think about um, Wilhelm Marr, who uh, popularized the term anti-Semitism, and that uh, it was really just a brief uh, decade or two before the Jews turned that term from what was seen as a positive pro-European, pro-German term into a uh, term that the Jews used as a club against their enemies. To be an anti-Semite went from being a good thing, seen as a good thing by Europeans, to being seen as a bad thing. I looked up Bernard Lazar to see where this quote came from. It comes from a book of his that's notorious, the title is Antisemitism, Its History and Causes, published in 1894. And the version that I found online says uh, in its uh, introduction, one will find Lazar's book cited at many antisemitic websites and in antisemitic publications. The reason for this is that Lazar conducted a major review of the history of antisemitism and to a very large de degree can be read as having put the blame on Jews themselves. This, however, is a misreading of his work. From the way he is cited by anti-Semites, it may come as something of a surprise to note that Lazar, a journalist, was famous as the first defender of Captain Dreyfus, the first Dreyfus Yard. Moreover, he was perhaps the first French Jewish intellectual to commit fully to Zionism as a political solution. Bernard Lazar has interested commentators and historians not only for his contribution to the revision of the Dreyfus case, but also for his distinction as the first French Jew to make the transition from an almost self-hating endorsement of total assimilation to, as a solution to the Jewish problem to a full embrace of the cause of Zionism. Interesting that they describe total, assimil total assimilation, which is just de rigueur, it's expected of everyone else. They describe that as self-hating in a Jew, and that's the uh, the exception. That's one of the privileges that Jews. It's probably the main privilege, and uh, that that Jews get. In fact, uh, that's Lazar referred to it. That everywhere they want they want to remain Jews, and they're allowed. They're permitted to remain Jews 
while everyone else is supposed to jump into the melting pot and mix it up, the Jews remain aloof from that. And it's seen as anti-Semitism, it's seen as uh, uh, hatred of Jews to, uh, to criticize that double standard. Or to want to keep to yourself is seen as some sort of irrational uh, racism, but not when it's the Jews that want to keep to themselves. But we see here, at least in this introduction to Lazar's work, that this person writing this introduction understands that Lazar is not really critical of the Jews, sees the deeper sentiments behind Lazar's work. And it's not hard to find either. I jumped right to chapter 10, which was titled The Race, because I thought, well, maybe he had something interesting to write about race. And no, it's the same old Jewish line about race. He uh, describes at the very beginning of the chapter how the anti-Semites, and remember this is circa 1894, see Jews as racially distinct from the native population. For instance, in, in France, the French saw the Jews as a, a separate alien people, as did the Germans in Germany and the English in England. Uh, but he goes on to write that race, however, is a fiction. No human group exists that can boast of having had two original ancestors and having descended from them without any adulteration of the primitive stock through mixture. Human races are not pure, i.e., strictly speaking, there is no such thing as a race. This is the standard line of Jews and pretty much always has been. And even though Many Jews, especially contemporaries at this time, were talking about the Jewish race, and some still do to this day. Uh, this denial of race, this um, denial that it really exists, is much more common. And it's interesting to see that it goes all the way back to uh, to the supposed anti-Semite uh, critic of the Jews, Lazar, who in some respects did understand the Jews well, and probably did understand that race was real, but like most other Jews, the denial of race is not because they truly think that race doesn't exist. It's because they think that race is bad for the Jews, that an understanding of race is bad for the Jews, because then it gives moral legitimacy to other peoples to exclude the Jews from their living space, to see themselves as separate from the Jews in the same way that the Jews see themselves as separate so, you know, Bernard Lazar, far from being a, a harsh anti-Semitic uh, critic, is, is really a Jewish apologist. And Jewish apologetics are just part of Jewish crypsis, part of their disguise, part of how they do what they do, part of how they keep us uh, off our guard. Uh, and, uh, and that's our failing, is, is white people's failing, is to let down our guard. Uh, but it's, it's encouraged by the enemy. The title of the International Jew, the last chapter, is an address to Gentiles on the Jewish problem, Gentiles in quotes. And it talks about, it goes immediately into this, the, the question of this term Gentile. And to me, Gentile just means non-Jew. It's a euphemism for non-Jew. Uh, that's what it's always meant. It's, but like everything else with the Jews, they have a special word, uh, 
The special word for racism against Jews is anti-Semitism. The special word for non-Jew is Gentile. The special word for miscegenation for Jews is intermarriage. There's a whole host of, of special words like that. That it's just another privilege that the Jews uh, uh, demand for themselves and and uh, take arrogate to themselves. It, I think it makes a good point this uh, international Jew thing, and I'll refer you back to the discussion that uh, Carolyn and Hadding had during the reading of it. Um, but there was good and points and bad points. I think this point in particular was good, that the idea of the Jews dictating the terms. And when when your enemy dictates the terms that you speak in, they're in a way they're dictating the terms you think in as well. And they criticized, the, the writer of that piece criticized the term Gentile as having very little meaning because it the Gentile is not a cohesive group. It has no common interests, unlike the Jews, in contrast to the Jews. And one of the first things I thought about when I heard that whole discussion was people of color versus whites, because people of color is really just another word for not white, except in this case, whereas Gentile is a word that the Jews created and the Jews apply to everyone who's not a Jew, people of color is a term that the people of color have adopted for themselves. They created it. It was probably a Jew that coined the term and and convinced everybody else to start using it. But the people of color, these non-whites, happily use it and apply it to themselves. And you see that the criticism of Gentiles, that Gentile doesn't make sense or isn't uh, uh, a cohesive group, uh, kind of falls apart when you look at the example, the contemporary example of people of color. However, even though people of color just means not white, it's defined in terms of whiteness, right? It means not white. And even though the people that are in that group are so disparate from each other, more disparate, they have there's more contrast, more differences between them than there is between white people. And white people are often criticized as having, well, oh, what does white mean? You know, oh, you know, are Greeks white? Are... Uh, Hungarians white, are Finns white, you know, they start picking away at the margins. Well, that's easy to do. It's much easier to do with people of color, this imaginary group, people of color. And that's my point, is, is that as imaginary or as, as even though it's easier to criticize, people of color seem to have more political will, more political effect, uh, more moral legitimacy. They feel legitimate as a group, and advocate for their interests as a group. Most of it is a pretense, and it would fall apart if it were pushed hard enough, but it shows the effect of the Jewish control over the media and academia in supporting the people of color identity and enabling it in that way. And on the flip side, tearing down and delegitimatizing white identity, constantly pathologizing and demonizing white identity, even though if you were a visitor from Mars and you saw this white versus people of color and thought of them as just two different groups of people, one that looks like a mishmash of people that don't actually belong together, like Gentiles, people of color, versus another that's relatively more cohesive. Now, how is it that the Jews stay cohesive and Gentiles don't, but the reverse applies 
to people of color versus whites, whereas whites are running off in different directions, imagining that they don't have anything in common with other whites. People of color are able to be cohesive and vote as a block together. Well, I've already uh, shared my feeling about that. I think it, it has to do with 24-7 media indoctrination, propaganda, uh, and academia. The uh, International Jew article goes on uh, into even more. I, I've uh, talked about so much else in this episode. I guess I'll have to do a, a part two for this uh, and talk about some more of the, uh, the points I wanted to make. The Jewish question has existed for a long time. Yes, it, it has. Uh, the Jew knows the Jewish question, knows about it. It's white people that keep forgetting it. White people keep misconstruing the Jews. Uh, 